Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Let me welcome you to an hour and a half of information that will assist you in understanding how current events are actually setting the stage for the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word to be fulfilled. I'm here in temporary studios in Peoria, Illinois. Now, this, I believe, is about the third week we've been here. We've gone through snow. We've gone through freezing rain. We've gone through zero temperatures. And we're going to be leaving here after the broadcast, going a little bit east over towards Hoopston, Illinois. And that's where I'll be at the First Baptist Church all day Sunday and then Monday and Tuesday. I said, give me, if you will, 90 minutes, an hour and a half, and I'll go to my broadcast partners around the world. We'll have our report from Itamar Marcus about what the Palestinian Authority television is teaching the children that Israel is about to disappear. And then we'll be talking with David Dolan about the attack on Thursday evening in Tel Aviv. Hamas sent two rockets into Tel Aviv, and then they responded with Israeli Defense Force Air Force attacks on Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip. Well, all of that's coming up in a moment right here on Prophecy Today. But we're going to go now to Ken Timmerman. Ken, it's great to be able to talk to you. A number of serious things, though, we need to talk about as it relates to geopolitical activities around the world. And let me start with this one. The Iranian ballistic missile program has some new developments. Now, they're always doing something. We're going to be talking about a drone exercise that they're involved in as well. But talk to me about these new developments with the Iranian ballistic program. Well, that, that's right. I mean, they are beavering away all the time, Jimmy, to build longer-range missiles, missiles which are capable of carrying nuclear warheads. They already have an arsenal of missiles capable of reaching Israel with nuclear warheads. Now they're trying to build what they call a space launch vehicle. They've had Two attempted launches earlier this year, both of them, we believe, failed, but they're working hard, hard at this. And a space launch vehicle is important because it gives them the cover, if you wish, of a civilian missile program, which obviously they insist that it is, while, in fact, the technology is exactly identical to what you need to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile, which would allow them to reach the United States with a nuclear warhead should they choose to do so. Well, they're going to probably choose to do so because their ultimate aim is to take control of the entire world like we talked about last week and set up a worldwide caliphate when they supposedly are able to defeat all world powers. There's another story coming out of Iran. They're involved in a massive exercise using 50 Iranian drones to conduct this exercise, and it's basically focused on a way to Jerusalem exercise. Now, does this drone come from the drone that they captured a couple of years ago that uh, was shot down, uh, one that was controlled by the United States, or how did they come up with this technology of the drones, and what's this exercise all about? Well, they're claiming that the new drones they're using are based on the U.S. Sentinel drone that they captured in 2011. It looks identical, but it is not capable of taking off, apparently, independently. It needs some kind of rocket assist. They, they shoot it off from the back of a pickup truck. Uh, this has advantages and disadvantages, but cutting to the chase, it shows that the Iranians 
have a new aggressive military capability. They love to demonstrate these things. Very different from the Chinese. The Chinese develop uh, new capabilities uh, stealthily, uh, quietly. They don't like to show them off, uh, and they wait to use them on the given day. The Iranians like to build up very slowly, very openly, show you what they've got, and create fear. That's why we call them a terrorist regime. They are trying to terrorize their opponents before they actually strike them militarily. And I think that's what this drone exercise is all about. The Israelis, for their part, are not terrorized. <laughs> they are not afraid of the Iranian drones. They believe they can shoot them down. And, uh, you know, the Israelis showed just recently that their Iron Dome system is uh, quite capable at shooting down incoming rockets and missiles. But that's what the Iranians are trying to do. They are trying to terrorize their uh, opponents before they actually strike them. Well, uh, speaking of Iran terrorizing their opponents, about eight or ten years ago, there was a major war between Iran and Iraq. Now there are different relationships developing between these two countries, and the president of Iran, Rouhani, has made his way into Baghdad to see if he can harness Iraq's banks uh, so that they can break up the U.S. anti-Iran oil sanctions that have been applied on the Iranians. Is he going to be successful with that? Uh, yes, he is, and this is a very serious development. The Iranians have essentially co-opted the government of Iraq, uh, this government that was that the United States helped to put in place with our the blood and treasure, uh, our young men, uh, mostly young men who sacrificed their lives to bring freedom to the Iraqi people. Now we're being repaid by a pro-Iranian government in Iraq. And specifically, uh, the deal that you're referring to involves their banking system. Now, we've known for a number of years that the banking system in Iraq is corrupt, uh, that the Iranians have infiltrated the system and siphon off an enormous amount of money. I've heard estimates as high as $10 billion per year for black operations, for terrorist operations for the Quds Force. And they get this from the foreign currency float of the Iraqi bank. But this goes further than that. Now they're talking about using the Iraqi banks to essentially launder Iranian oil proceeds, the proceeds from Iranian oil seeds, that then the Iraqi banks will transfer in euros to banks in Tehran. This goes completely against uh, U.S. sanctions, against U.S. policy. Secretary of State Pompeo has very explicitly and publicly warned the Iraqi prime minister not to do this, uh, saying that if they do, the United States could cut Iraqi banks off from uh, the U.S. dollar banking system around the world, which is a serious threat and a credible threat, by the way. But this shows how deeply embedded the Iranian regime, the Iranian terrorist regime, has become in Iraq's new government. And that is deeply troubling. Ken, is there any possibility that there's a connection with a report? I've heard that the United States military is building up their troops in Iraq in order to be able to go after the pro-Iranian Iraqi militia. Any connection to these two stories? Well, I, I think certainly the timing would suggest there is, because they're happening simultaneously, all right? Uh, there have been U.S. reinforcements flown to Iraq just this past week as the Iranians were meeting. Uh, Iranian President Rouhani was in Baghdad, and, and they were talking about this banking arrangement. 
uh, I think you're going to see um, increasing pressure from the U.S. military on these pro-Iranian militias. There are actually three of them. Uh, one of them was just listed by the Treasury Department as a terrorist organization, Jabba, and they are involved in Syria on behalf of the Quds Force, of the Iranian Quds Force. The other two are in Iraq. They're Hezbollah-related organizations, uh, and they also have essentially declared open hostilities against the United States. So, yes, I think this is all part of a peace. Uh, we're coming to a showdown, I think, between the U.S. government and the government of Iraq uh, and the prime minister who has shown he is very close to the Iranian regime. Uh, looks like he's going to side with the Iranians. What we don't know is how President Baham Saleh, the Kurdish president of Iraq, who I'm, I have known for 25 years, who lived in Washington himself for well over 15 years, we don't know how President Saleh is going to act in all of this. I tend to think he's going to try to moderate the Iranians, but he could be outplayed because the Iranians are so deeply engaged and embedded in that Iraqi government. What's so very interesting about this scenario is that Iraq, which is biblical Babylon, is talked about there in Revelation chapter 18. We'll have more on that when I take a look at the book in moments right here on Prophecy Today. Ken, what's going on as it relates to Syria? A very high-ranking political leader made the statement this week they're ready to attack Israel unless Israel withdraws from the Golan Heights. Meanwhile, the United States wants to endorse the fact Israel has sovereignty over the Golan Heights. What's happening? Well, that's right, and, it, and it's uh, frankly a, a bit of a surprise because the Syrians uh, have generally refrained from this kind of uh, uh, outrageous rhetoric uh, forever. I mean, they, they just don't tend to engage in it because they know the Israelis have a very long arm and are capable of reaching deep into Syria with airstrikes to punish them or punish people that are threatening Israel. So it was very surprising to see this deputy foreign minister, Faisal Mekdad, submit an official warning to the head of the United Nations Truth Supervisory Organization, warning that if the U.S. Uh, recognized Israel's sovereignty, or if Israel, to start with, if Israel asserted its sovereignty over the Golan, that Syria would respond militarily against Israel. I think this is, a, frankly, a dangerous ploy on the part of the Syrians. I believe the Israelis have clearly got the upper hand militarily. Uh, they've been, been installed on a part of the Golan ever since the uh, 73 war, and uh, they need it strategically. They need the Golan Heights strategically. They saw in 73 exactly what happens when they don't have the Golan Heights, when an enemy force is on the Golan above Israel looking down onto the Galilee. Very, very dangerous for them. So I don't see the Israelis giving up the Golan, and uh, the U.S. has, in fact, suggested that they would support Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. This report, a uh, very close connection to Bible prophecy again, uh, because Daniel 11 talks about Syria making the first move in the alignment of nations that will come to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. That's the reason we have Ken Timmerman behind these microphones here at this broadcast table to help us look at geopolitical activities 
and then see how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Ken, an excellent job. Thank you, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Always a pleasure to be with you. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan has a Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here in Temporary Studios in Peoria, Illinois. And we've been here. This is our third week. We're going to be leaving right after the broadcast, headed east towards Hoopston, Illinois. We're going to go over there to the First Baptist Church, have an all-day Sunday, then Monday and Tuesday evening Prophecy Conference. want to invite you to come on Sunday morning at 10.30, Sunday evening at 6 p.m., then Monday and Tuesday at 7 p.m., we'll have Prophecy Q&A before each of the evening services. It's going to be a great opportunity to study the prophetic Word of God, and what a special time that is in this world today for us to dig into the prophetic Word of God and see what His plan is for the future. Come and join us on Sunday morning at 10.30, Sunday evening at 6 p.m., then Monday and Tuesday at 7 p.m. We'll have Prophecy Q&A before each of the evening services at the First Baptist Church in Hoopston, Illinois. Well, let's go directly to David Dolan. A number of things happening in the Middle East, and in particular, as we focus on Israel and the city of Jerusalem. David, on late Thursday night, Hamas sent, supposedly, I say, because they are denying they sent the rockets in, but Hamas supposedly sent two rockets into Israel with an attack on Tel Aviv. And then early Friday morning, the Israeli Air Force responded 
attacking the Hamas sites there in the Gaza Strip. What do we know what's happening now? Well, Jimmy, the latest news is that the uh, Iron Dome anti-rocket system is being deployed this afternoon. Actually, it began yesterday throughout Israel. So the reports that this may have been a mistake, the IDF is saying that uh, they may not have intentionally fired these rockets, is being belied by that action, but also a lot of criticism of the prime minister for allowing that line to go out. To Naftali Bennett, the head of the New Right Party, said that's pathetic, that you can't just have a rocket set itself up and aim itself and be all loaded, and that it's a mistake. He said this is was a deliberate attack, and the same statement was made last August when Beersheba was hit by a grad missile. They said it was a lightning strike that set it off. Well, again... At the time, the experts were saying these things just aren't set up and ready to fire at any moment. They were deliberately set up. They found parts of the rocket near the uh, town of Halon. That's very close to the heart of Tel Aviv on Friday afternoon, Jimmy. And they claims from Iran that they were Fajar, Iranian-made rockets. We know that Hamas and Islamic Jihad both have those type of Iranian-produced rockets. Many reports that this was another test by Iran, just like the firing in the north at the Golan Heights uh, in January, that this was another test of Israel's response. And originally, uh, it was stated that the Iron Dome had taken out one of the rockets. Later, the IDF said no. One exploded in the air on its own, apparently, and the other did land, as I said, uh, near the city of Halone. The sirens went off, and everybody went to their bomb shelters, and this is the first attack on Tel Aviv, the Tel Aviv area, since 2014. So a significant move, Jimmy, and as you said, a 100, they said, targets were hit in Gaza afterwards, including some Hamas naval sites, uh, some rocket-launching sites in the north, an underground missile factory was hit, so uh, Hamas was put back a bit in its in its war preparations, and as a result, they canceled the Friday riots that go on uh, pretty much every Friday along the Gaza border fence. They canceled that, and the, the situation was fairly calm after the 12 hours of action between the time of the rockets hitting and Israel's final airstrikes on Friday morning. Well, it looks like they're ratcheting up their efforts to try to attack the Jewish state of Israel. Let's switch to the Golden Heights right now. Syria is vowing to attack Israel unless it withdraws from the Golden Heights. I cannot believe Israel would ever do that, but uh, the threat from Israel coming from a pretty high-ranking Syrian official. What do you know? Yes, it was the deputy foreign minister, and it was a formal note that was sent to the head of the UN's uh, truth agency that operates in South Lebanon and elsewhere, that's a female general, I believe, from Europe. It basically said we are preparing to take back the Golan Heights, be notified. That's what it essentially said. So it wasn't even just a threat. It was a vow that they will do that. And then, of course, uh, early this week we found out, uh, well, we knew already, you and I have talked about it, but it was confirmed by the idea that Hezbollah, has uh, been operating right along the Golan border. They're in Kenetra, and they're in the other towns there. Israel has fired at them several times, tank fire mostly early this week uh, at them and last week as well. And uh, this is a very serious threat. But, of course, 
It came soon after um, Lindsey Graham uh, toured the Golan with uh, Bibi Netanyahu. Actually, that happened after this announcement, but in which he said he would be pushing for the U.S. to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the area. So that was a boost politically. But definitely Syria's back on the warpath, and Jimmy, that's the first time we've had a Syrian official say that they were preparing to go to war with Israel since the early 1970s. So it's a very significant statement and uh, development indeed. So much news to cover with you, David. You mentioned Hezbollah. Nasrallah, who is the head of Hezbollah, said Israel is afraid to go to war with this terrorist organization. I don't believe that's the case, do you? Well, Jimmy, it's all of the pro-Iranian elements are basically in place for war. And what the, why Netanyahu took a relatively mild response as it was seen, and then this story that it was a mistake, Naftali Bennett, uh, the head of the New Right Party, really tore into him, but so did Benny Gantz, the more left-wing politician who's the head of the Blue-White Alliance, He went down to the Gaza Strip, held a press conference on Friday, and blasted Netanyahu, said this is such a weak response. Well, Netanyahu knows that if they go after Hamas in a big way, Hezbollah will get involved. There will be probably direct Iranian involvement, and we would have a full war. Even the Iraqi uh, Shiite militias would probably get involved. And uh, again, it's just a few weeks before elections. He just doesn't want that to take place. But Hezbollah's making their noises and, again, so brazenly operating right along the fence. I mean, the Israelis can see them, and they they issued a statement later confirming that they're there and saying that they're doing reconnaissance. They're watching all the Israeli soldiers, where they go, where they move. They are planning war, and this is coming from all the pro-Iranian elements. And the question is, will it just all explode at once? And, of course, the situation in Jerusalem is also tied in with that as well, the violence there. Violence all over the area of the state of Israel, in the north and the south, in the center, in Jerusalem. And Netanyahu is dealing with all of this as he's working at being reelected as the prime minister. David, is this going to affect those elections at all? Well, Jimmy, if we go to anything approaching full war, then uh, the elections will be postponed. It's happened before. We have the Palestinians already saying that this March 30th, which is their annual land day when they always hold demonstrations and usually riots all over the place, that this is going to be the biggest one yet. Well, that's just uh, nine days before the election So that alone could set it off. But definitely, if we're in a full conflict, Jimmy, then they'll have to postpone the national vote, and they can do that fairly quickly and easily. It's not as set in stone as in the States, uh, where you have all the ballots printed up many months before and all of this. This is a quick process in Israel, so it can be postponed. But um, we'll just have to see, and Iran is the key element, Jimmy, if they want this to bust up entirely. And of course, we've had all these threats from their leaders uh, going on. And yesterday and, and the day before, they had this massive drone exercises over the Persian Gulf. Uh, you know, they are ready for conflict, apparently, so they say, and Israel is their target. So we'll just have to pray and watch, but it certainly doesn't look good. And also with the incitement in Jerusalem on top of everything else as well. Got about 30 seconds left, if you will, David. Netanyahu, speaking of the prime minister, made a statement this week, and this basically relates to the election. He said Israel is not a state. 
that is for all citizens, but it is a Jewish state. Is that going to cause him any harm? And in fact, the Knesset voted that into law, so it's absolute truth. Well, it is truth, but he wasn't saying that the Arab residents, uh, citizens of Israel, are not citizens by any means, but that there is only one place on earth that's ruled by Jews, that is geared towards Jews, that takes special consideration of Jewish ethics and uh, the Bible and these sorts of things, and that is Israel, and it's going to remain a Jewish-dominated state. And uh, he said this isn't racism, this is just a fact that has to be accepted for uh, the situation with the Palestinians to ever calm down. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East, but basically we focus on Israel, what's happening within and externally, as enemies are talking about attacking the Jewish state, and of course what happens internally is always covered when I talk with David Dolan. David, thank you for your Middle East news update. We'll have another conversation next week with another one. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Itamar Mark is standing by. We're going to have to catch him on a train. He's traveling uh, from New York City to Washington. Want to find out what the Palestinian media is saying. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here at Temporary Studios in Peoria, Illinois. Now, we've been here in central Illinois We're here for the purpose of visiting a number of churches. We're in Peoria the first week, Eureka the second week, and now we're on our way after the broadcast today over to First Baptist Church of Hoopston, Illinois. We'll be there for a three-day prophecy conference. Uh, That will include Sunday all-day prophecy conference and then Monday and Tuesday evenings. Looking forward to studying the prophetic word of God with those dear people. We go now, normally I would be saying to Israel, but instead we're going to catch up with the man Itamar Marcus, who heads up the Palestinian Media Watch, palwatch.org, is the website media address for this organization that monitors the Palestinian media, both the electronic and the print media. I say we catch him on a train. He's on his way from Washington to New York. And talk to me, Itamar. Why are you here in the United States and traveling late at night to get to the other location? Well, I'm here in the United States speaking in different cities. I'm going 
from New York to, to Washington. I spoke in New York. I actually spoke in Philadelphia on the way, and I'm speaking in, in Washington as well, and I'm heading into Florida. And basically the message that I'm giving people is uh, the, the message similar to material you're hearing on this program. Uh, what's really happening, the message, the true messaging of the Palestinian leadership to their people, not a peace message, it's a hate message, it's a destroy Israel message, uh, and, and unfortunately the world is not listening to them, and we have to make them listen, because this will hopefully create better policy. Well, you look like you're on the direction that you need to be on, coming out of New York on your way to Washington, and then down to Florida. Hope you have a great trip while here in the United States, and a productive trip as well. I know that you'll be able to have an opportunity to meet many of your supporters for your organization there in Israel, and we hope that is very successful as well. You had a very interesting report just recently at your website, powwatch.org, talking about the Palestinian Authority television that is using this opportunity to teach children that the end of Israel is about to be here. In other words, they're saying, look, sit back, relax, the end of the Jewish state of Israel will be over, then we'll have the entire state to ourselves, we'll call it Palestine. How in the world can they really assure the children that that's going to happen? And really, this is simply a means of propaganda for the little children, is it not? Well, it's a lot worse than propaganda because when children uh, believe that that's what is inevitable, and they're also told at other times that that's something that they have to accomplish. Children are then motivated to go out and commit terror. They're very much motivated to hate. They're motivated to deny recognition of Israel and to deny any possibility of coexistence with Israel. So it's really the root of the continuation of the conflict, which is way beyond just simple propaganda. Well, propaganda is used, of course, by the Palestinians, but as you've indicated to us in your answer to my question, it's a a step up. They're ratcheting up propaganda, especially for the children. It looks like to me, Itamar, that the official plan for the children and all the Palestinian people would be to use Palestinian television and the educational system, especially for these little children, to prepare them for a time in the future, and it's not a good future as far as the state of Israel is concerned, is it? It's absolutely correct. The school book message, for example, they promote terrorists as as heroes. In fact, there's a section on on heroes in a fifth-grade Palestinian school book that teaches them everyone wants to be like them. And who do they cite? They cite Dalal Lugrabi, who killed 37 people, and they say everyone wants to be like them. So the children are literally being taught that they are supposed to use murderers of Israelis, murderers of children. Alan Magrubi killed 12 children and 25 adults, and they're told that they should want to be like her. And this is a clear message, and these are all books produced by the Ministry of Education of the Palestinian Authority. There can be no doubt what they want of their children. How are they going about telling these children in this television program, in this series, and also in the schoolrooms of these little children as well? How do they suggest that the end of Israel will come about? They don't discuss that. They just tell them that it's inevitable because Israel 
has no right to exist. Israel is said to have stolen their land, and therefore it's inevitable that Israel will disappear. They're not told what's going to happen. They're just told that it's sort of some justice, cosmic justice that must happen, and obviously these are religious people, religious Muslims, obviously they're indicating here that uh, somehow Allah will uh, arrange and guarantee that Israel will come to an end. Itamar, I want to touch base with another subject that's pretty much in the top of the news as well in the state of Israel, and in particular Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount. Conflict is taking place there near the Eastern Gate, or what is referred to as the Golden Gate as well. And it looks like that the Palestinians want to establish another mosque on the Temple Mount. Now, that's not keeping the status quo uh, but there have been firebombs that, that have been thrown at the Israeli security. Shots have been fired, rioting up there. Why do the Palestinians believe they have a right to have another mosque? I, I believe they have four or five right now. Why do they think they have the right to have another mosque up on the Temple Mount? I don't think they think they have a right. I think they want to push Israel to the brink. I think they're interested in terror and violence right now. I think the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is very weak internally. He needs a crisis against Israel, but he will be popular. He wants Israelis to be killed, but he will be popular. And this is an artificial, very much totally artificial crisis that could lead to terror. That already did. You said there were already were firebombs thrown. This will lead to terror, and it's an artificial crisis that's being done totally for internal reasons by Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, who is being isolated and unpopular, and he wants to gain popularity. Am I correct that uh, in the end of the Six-Day War, 1967, there was an agreement at least to keep the status quo on the Temple Mount? Am I correct on that? And if I am, this certainly does not sound like the status quo on the Temple Mount. Exactly. It wasn't even an agreement. It was a, a unilateral gesture by Israel to, there was no Palestinian authority then. Then it was the Canadian government. Jordan had illegally ruled Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Israel got it back, but Israel decided, and in a historical perspective, it's one of Israel's great mistakes that it's made throughout its history. Israel decided to give the Temple Mount away to Jordan in the hope that it could be a bridge to peace. And it turns out that it's been a bridge to endless, endless conflict and terror and a source of endless conflict and terror. It's sort of a, a repeating scene. Uh, Israel very often does gestures that they hope will be seen on the other side of peace promoting and it ends up being a source of terror. Israel gave away all the Jewish land in the Gaza Strip hoping it would bring peace and it brought terror. Well, thing with the the Temple Mount. Israel gave the Temple Mount to Jordan after it already was under Israel control, and it was hoped that this would be a gesture to indicate that Israelis are really interested in peace, and instead it has brought just the opposite. It has been the source of conflict and terror. May I stress how much this is true? Yasser Arafat started the 2000 terror campaign, which he called an intifada, which lasted four years under the guise of protecting the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In 2014, Abbas started a terror wave, and in 2015, he started another terror wave. All of them were supposedly in defense of what he called the Al-Aqsa Mosque against Israeli presence on the Temple Mount. Had Israel been there all along, as we should have been, none of that would have happened. Another friend of ours, uh, both you and I, 
know Winky Madad very well. He's also a broadcast partner with us here on Prophecy Today. He has suggested that they put a Jewish synagogue up on the Temple Mount and basically in the same area where the big fight for the next mosque is over there at the Eastern or Golden Gate. Do you think they would ever allow for a Jewish synagogue up there on the Temple Mount? I don't think uh, the Israeli government is going to do it. They're afraid. Unfortunately, the the Palestinian Authority has used terror so many times to intimidate Israelis and the Israeli government that literally, and this is one of the great tragedies of Israeli policy, uh, they've given in so many times in the face of terror that the Palestinian Authority uses terror and and initiates terror and uh, threatens terror. Because of that, I'm sure the Israeli military establishment will say that the benefits of a synagogue don't outweigh the the loss of life that we will have. And I'm not saying I'm justifying that position. I'm just saying that's what I am sure. I've heard it before. That's what I'm sure the Israeli military establishment will say. So that's why I don't believe it's ever going to. Well, certainly not in the near future. It's not going to happen. I've heard people say that this could possibly lead into a major religious war on the Temple Mount between the Jews and the Muslim people, the Palestinian people of today. Is that a viable possibility? Are the Palestinians angry enough right now to go to a religious war? Well, it's it's an artificial anger. Like I said, the Palestinian Authority leadership would like to See, I don't know if it's an all-out war. They'd like to see another terror way. They'd like to see a month, two, three, four of terror. Abbas would end up being very popular. And so he's inventing a crisis on the Temple Mount, as he's done in the past. So uh, certainly no one in Israel wants to live this war, and that's why I'm sure Israel will, will reject any calls to put up a synagogue there, because uh, they know that the Palestinian population has been trained by its leaders that uh, if Israel does anything on the, on the Temple Mount, they should go out and be violent. And uh, Israel doesn't want a religious war about it. They don't want any war. Uh, so they won't do anything that might bring about a war. And, of course, the PA just the opposite. The Palestinian Authority would like to see it right now. And we'll see what happens. We'll see who wins out on this uh, on this uh, artificial conflict that's being started by the Palestinian leadership. On this right now. Well, we'll stay on top of this story with Itamar Marcus. He heads up a team that monitors the Palestinian media. They're called Palestinian Media Watch. Their location on the internet, palwatch.org. And their leader, Itamar Marcus, our broadcast partner right here today on Prophecy Today Weekend. We're going to pray that you have a safe journeys as you travel here in America and a successful trip as you meet with people and give them the real story behind what the Palestinian people are saying. Thank you so much for giving us a moment, Itamar. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Very important report coming from Itamar Marcus. Here in the United States, actually, we caught him on a train and were able to record our interview with Itamar. That's always a great opportunity when he's in the States to talk with him because he's here to help Americans understand what's going on in the Palestinian media there 
in Israel. Well, let's switch to another very important region of our world that plays a key role in the end-time scenario that's found in Bible prophecy. I'm talking about the European Union and our man there, John Rood, it's a man who lived in Brussels, headquarters for the European Union, for about 35 years. He's very attuned to what's happening, but I'm not sure, John, that you or I am going to be able to explain what is going on in the British Parliament. I mean, you almost have to have a scorecard to know what those characters are doing. Just try to give us a short statement about what is happening there in the European Parliament and Mrs. May's proposal for Brexit. Yes, that's exactly right. I love the scorecard analogy, Jimmy. We have a series of three uh, very quick votes. Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has attempted a second withdrawal agreement, which has been rejected by nearly 150 votes, so it's disgraceful. The second vote that has just been passed a couple days later is a no-deal Brexit vote, and the result of that is the European Parliament is saying they must reject a no-deal Brexit under any circumstances. So to to reject a no-deal means there has to be a deal, but yet we don't have that. And then the third vote, which is happening momentarily, is can Brexit be delayed? Now, that goes into different scenarios. There's a possibility of a short delay or a much longer delay. Well, let's with that, and that's a pretty precise statement that you just gave. I like that, John. I didn't think you could do it. I sure could not have done it. But uh, since we have that much, let's go back and think this whole thing through for a moment. As we do, we understand, really, before this all came about, the British government did not want to break away from the European Union. It was the people, and the people voted in that referendum, and basically they were motivated by the immigration uh, problem that was taking place, and so the government ended up having to deal with it. Is that pretty much a correct statement? Yeah, that's, that's highly accurate. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, now really is not for Brexit, yet she feels an obligation to respect the will of the people. But Brexit of course, was from the vote uh, more than two years ago. And so the people have given the direction to leave the European Union. The government uh, does not want to make a haste to do that. So there is this tension between the government and respecting the laws. It does look now that the tendency will be that the government is working towards a delay. But it's very, very uncertain, the entire scenarios that are happening. You know, it's so very interesting to me that Theresa May did not want a Brexit. She was a non-Brexit voter. But then as the prime minister, she had to come forth with the will of the people. Uh, Here's another thought, and let's just discuss it out loud together for our friends to listen in on so they can get some understanding of what's happening there in Great Britain. You said most likely the delay. Now, we have no idea, and I think you and I talked about the fact that could be even up to four years or so. But because of the economic situation with Great Britain and the situation of staying with or without the European Union, I mean, that's going to be a major problem. They could possibly be involved economically with the European Union, uh, but not 
have a vote in the European Union. Is that a possible outcome? Yes, the United Kingdom joined the European Union, I believe, in the mid-1970s. And the reason was basically to join a free trade association. They weren't considering to, you know, have the euro, that there would be no British pound and so forth. So they joined for economic reasons. The problem has been the European Union has not been forthright in their goals for a political union and to uh, for individual member nations to lose their sovereignty. So the U.K. is not interested to pull out the economic benefits, but they want to rule themselves. They want to have their sovereignty back. So there's going to be a play between the economic reasons which they want to stay and to reject the idea of Brussels being the super state. John, I'll tell you what this shows me, and it's tangible evidence that in order for any other European Union member state to pull out of the European Union, it's going to be a very difficult deal, isn't it? Uh, I, I totally agree. I believe that the European Union hierarchy, as I like to refer to them, are absolutely terrified by the idea that a nation the size of, of the United Kingdom would be able to leave and that that would give a precedent for other countries. Uh, of course, there's a very fast-growing Eurosceptic component in many of the uh, countries. There's actually uh, 28 nations right now in the European Union, 27, if the United Kingdom can indeed pull this off and leave. Those with a Eurosceptic basis would be 17 countries, which very, very surprisingly would actually leave 10 countries left. But we see that there could be a very cataclysmic event in members of the European Union. Brussels is really fighting an existential crisis here. They've made it very, very difficult for the United Kingdom to leave. That's a very interesting thought you just brought to our attention. 17 may pull out, that leaves 10, which uh, fits with the prophetic passage in the book of Daniel. Very, very interesting. Glad you brought that up. Well, you've been a long-time observer, living there in Brussels for sure. You've been right on top of the European Union. After all this bomboggle is over, do you think the European Union is going to be the same, or will it be changed? I believe from the Brexit situation, the European Union will never be the same, because even if there is a failure and somehow the U.K. is is tied in because it's enormous web to try to uh, untangle. Nevertheless, the political issues, the sovereignty issues are still at the very forefront, and the growing uh, component from the Eurosceptic parties that are in all of these countries. So uh, this is not a situation that's going to go away. We'll see what the United Kingdom is able to do. We can expect a delay It could be very short if the third attempt of a withdrawal agreement passes, but it it hasn't had anything close to passing. If the third attempt, which should uh, come up again, so another vote, uh, if that's not approved, then we're looking at a much longer period of uncertainty and delay, which the European Union can use in their favor. You know, John, you and I both have read the bottom line, the last chapter we know that the European Union is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, and that is a prophecy that will indeed be fulfilled. 
Yes, indeed, that is that is what we're seeing. Uh, there's no doubt that today's European Union is bringing forth the Bible prophecy. That's why we bring John Rood to this broadcast table to interact with us. We may not have all the answers. Neither John nor myself are prophets nor even sons of prophets. Uh, but we can know what the bottom line is, what God's prophetic word says, and then report on the political activities to help you and us try to get an understanding of how this is all coming together. Again, we know it's going to work out as to what the Word of God has to say. John, thank you so much. I I know it's been difficult for me to understand it. Thank you for some very informative statements you made in helping us try to get a little picture of what's happening. We appreciate it. We'll talk again next week if the European Union's still around. <laughs> There we go. Thank you. My great pleasure, Jimmy. You know, listening to John try to explain what's going on in the British Parliament is like trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together blinded. I mean, it was ridiculous. He did a great job, and we appreciate John covering what's happening in that unique part of the world, and it's key politically to the prophetic scenario that is found as it relates to the revived Roman Empire, European Union, at least the infrastructure of that revived Roman Empire. We'll stay on top of all of this information coming out of Great Britain and the European Union because it helps us to understand the times in which we're living. Well, right now we're going back to Israel, and we're going to be talking with our oldest son, Jim Jr. He and his brother are in the city of Jerusalem, and they're on a tour with a tour group that has arrived from all across the United States. Jim, it's great to be able to talk to you, buddy. Let me ask you this question. Did everybody arrive safely? Did they get into the land of the Bible, and are they excited? No, they're very excited, Dad. Everybody got here just fine, and we had a great first day. First day, I know that there was going to be uh, a big race going on there in Jerusalem. Were you able to get around among the runners in the race in the marathon there in Jerusalem? Can you believe it? Who was playing the Jerusalem Marathon the time that we are here with a group? But... Uh, <laughs> Yes, the whole city was locked down, and, uh, you know, they blocked all the roads. They're very tight on security here. They, In fact, they didn't even release the uh, route for the marathon until early in the morning, and we could hear them uh, around the city in our hotel where we're staying. Of course, we're staying right down on Ben Yehuda Street, which the marathon went right past. There's plenty of marathon runners staying in our hotel, and it was very exciting. And, yes, it was a very exciting day, but we were able to get around. Ben Yehuda Street. Man, that is a street that's named after the man who actually revived the Hebrew language. But that's the center of town. That's a pedestrian street. That's where everything is happening, is it not? It sure is. You know, Dad, so many years, and, and a lot of the people on the group have seen the Day of Discovery series and the John Ankerberg series that we did and, and a lot of our own filming that we've done here in, in Israel, especially in Jerusalem. And so much of that has been done on Ben Yehuda Street. And when we came to the hotel, people looked at the street and go, we know this street, we've seen it so much on TV. It is, if there had to be a center street or the main street in Jerusalem, it would be Ben Yehuda Street. 
Wow. Well, that's great for the tour group that's uh, visiting the land of the Bible there with you and Rick. Now, I know Friday morning, normally you go over to the Shepherd's Fields. Tell everybody, we're trying to entice others to come and go on a tour with you and Rick and myself. Tell everybody about why you go to the Shepherd's Fields. Over the years, Dad, we've studied God's Word. In fact, uh, determining the authenticity of a site, how authentic a site is. You use three criteria. You use three criteria. You use tradition. You use archaeological remains, and you use the Word of God. Well, when all three of those line up, you might as well X marks the spot. So we take our group the very first day to the shepherd's fields, using Scripture, understanding. You know, when the angels said to those shepherds out in the field. This is the sign for you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. You and I, we, we started researching that. In fact, you really did a lot of research for television, and we understood that there could only one, be one place where Jesus Christ would have been born. It would have been in Migdal Adar, that place where the priestly shepherds kept the sheep. So that's why we go on our first day, and we set the scene for the rest of the trip by using the criteria for determining the authenticity of sites. Well, that's a great reason for going to Migdal Adar there at the Shepherd's Fields. I know, Jim, then the rest of the day, if I could remember the schedule when I was involved in helping you guys over there, it was then over to the Holocaust Museum. We look at the reason for being in Israel, the birth of Christ, but then the Holocaust Museum and over to the Shrine of the Book, uh, there you have the political and the spiritual reasons for a tour in the land of Israel. Well, Jim, I know that you're very busy with the group. Let me let you go right now and have a great time. We'll check in next week just before you get ready to go to Petra. Looking forward to it, Dad. We're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, David James is standing by. We're going to be having a conversation about Christian persecution in locations maybe you thought that type of thing would never happen. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to the last half hour of Prophecy Today Weekend. So glad you could join us for the hour and a half. I need that much each and every week to be able to get to all my broadcast partners who have reports that will help you understand how current events are actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. We have one more conversation. David James standing by. We're going to be talking about persecution of Christians around the world. You're going to be surprised at some of the locations where that's taking place. Keep the dial set right where it is. Let me invite you to go to my website, prophecytoday.com. When you get there, if you will answer my poll question, it's on the home page on the left-hand column if you'll scroll down. The poll question this week, when we look at the headlines around the world, like the Iranian threat to Israel and the world, like Hamas attacking Tel Aviv with rockets, and like the Palestinian Authority television teaching Palestinian children that Israel is about to disappear. It seems like a prophetic scenario is appearing 
in the world today that was foretold by the ancient Jewish prophets. Could we be close to the fulfillment of these prophecies? That's the poll question. Please answer it if you have an opportunity to do that. Remember, I'm going to be at the First Baptist Church, Hoopston, Illinois. Love to have you come Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, Sunday at 1030 and 6, Monday and Tuesday at 7 with Prophecy Q&A before time. We now bring to these microphones David James. It's that time of the week when David and I get together to have a conversation on an issue that is confronting the body of Christ, the church, the Christian in those churches. We need to have a biblical understanding of the issues we discuss. This will help us in our daily walk. This week, we're going to focus on worldwide persecution of Christians. David, a number of weeks ago, we had a conversation focusing on some of the intense persecution that is being faced by Christians around the world. I would say there isn't enough attention, actually, that is being given to this issue, so I thought we should return to the topic from time to time to keep our listeners aware of what's happening. Help us do that, David. Sure. Well, I agree with you 100%, and I have to admit, in previous years, maybe I hadn't focused on it enough either, but what I'm seeing as we even keep watch for our research for our weekly conversations, I'm seeing more and more stories. So this is an intensification of persecution around the world. And just to give our listeners just a couple of resources that they might follow up on if they're interested in following this personally, they can go to the Open Doors USA website or the Voice of the Martyrs. And then there's another one called International Christian Concern, which is at persecution.org. So there are these and other websites as well as Christian news headlines websites that keep track of these things, and we've been relying on those in our discussions as well. And these different items that you have just mentioned have been very, very helpful for us to stay on top of what's going on. Again, another reason for the discussion this week. Now, you sent me several of those articles about what the situation is in a number of different countries. The first thing I would like to discuss with you is what is happening in China. Things are clearly getting progressively worse under China's current president. You're exactly right. This president and his administration have been intensifying their persecution. Just uh, an article that came out this past week, the head of the National Committee of the Three Self-Patriotic Movement of the Protestant Churches in China says there are problems with Christianity in the country. So they see this as a national Christian identity problem. The uh, Xinhua News Agency said that their people often say, one more Christian, one less Chinese. So they see this as a Western movement. And so they're rejecting that. The government must approve any Christian churches in China, and religious activities are strictly monitored. Chinese authorities passed uh, on a bill to one of their pastors for around $170,000 after they demolished his church building and then charged him for the demolition. And then back in January of last year, there was the Chinese government sent in police officers to dynamite and use heavy machinery to tear down a building where more than 50,000 Christians worship. So this is a very serious issue in China. Now, David, we're obviously not here to defend Islam in any way, shape, or form. 
But there was another recent article that you sent along concerning China's Muslim minority and the way that they are being treated. Actually, when we think about it, it could happen to Christians sooner or later. You're right, and that's one of the reasons why this article caught my attention. Just, again, a couple of days ago, the U.S. State Department slammed the human rights violations in China, saying the sort of abuses it had inflicted on Muslim minorities had not been seen in the world since the 1930s, apparently referring to Nazi and pre-Nazi Germany. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo highlighted abuses in Iran, South Sudan, Nicaragua, and China in the department's annual country reports on human rights, and he said that China was in a league of its own. So if it's in a league of its own compared to these other countries, that is a very serious issue. They've been rounding up, in some estimations, millions of Muslims, putting them into camps, torturing them and abusing them, and trying to basically erase their culture and their religion. And it's among the most serious human rights violations in the world today. So if they're willing to do that for one religion, then they would certainly be willing to do that for all religions. The good news is that there is a very strong underground church movement in China, and there could well be more uh, ab- Christians in absolute numbers by 2030 than any other nation in the world. David, another serious problem area is India, whose population really is as large as China, but which has a much lower population of Christians. I've been to India a number of times and taught there in a seminary in south-central India, south of Bangalore. And so I've been keeping my finger on the pulse of what has been happening there. The website Open Doors, which I mentioned earlier, said that in 2018, more than 12,000 Christians were attacked. And of course, incidents of violence against Christians have occurred nearly all parts of India, but until recently, it's been largely confined to the north central and western India. But in June of last year, there were five Christian women who were beaten and abducted and gang raped in eastern India. And then down in southeastern India, the very tip of the country, which is where there has not been nearly as much violence, there were churches are now being attacked by Hindu extremists, forcing them out of places of worship in this province as well. The body of a pastor there uh, in January of last year was found hung from his roof. And interestingly, this state, this province, is right next to the most Christian province in the country, Kerala State, where so many Christians, even at the seminary where I teach, travel up to, and even the president of that seminary is from Kerala State. So it's right next door, which means it's spreading all over India. Therefore, I conclude from your report about China and India that uh, in China, the state is the persecutor. However, in India, it's the increasingly radical Hindus that are really causing all the problems against Christians. But in more and more countries, as I've watched this across the world, David, and in particular, let's focus a moment on Africa, The aggressors are increasingly radical Muslims. That's right. So you have in China the Muslims that are being radically uh, persecuted, tortured, and killed, whereas they're the ones doing it in portions of Africa. You might expect this in northern Africa, but Islam is spreading throughout the country. Just last year in May, 10 Christians, 10 were killed as a Christian college was attacked in South Sudan, which is the country directly north of Uganda, where I teach every year. In fact, this year I'll be there three times teaching with both Word of Life and a 
seminary. In February of this year, at least 40 Christians were killed in two attacks in Kaduna State in Nigeria. Just reported that the first of this month, uh, Muslim mobs attacked 10 church buildings in Ethiopia, and that attack lasted about five hours, and it was against these 10 churches where more than almost 10,000 worshipers are estimated to attend those churches. There was a huge amount of property destroyed, including Bible songbooks, instruments, benches, and chairs. And then just as recently as two days ago, it was reported that there was a Boko Haram attack against a Christian village in which they destroyed a church as well as burned down six homes. So it's a, it's an increasing problem worldwide on every continent and maybe not in North America in terms of burning down buildings and things like that, but there are increasing problems around the world. You know, as I see it, David, these countries that are known for radical ideologies are not the only places where Christians are facing growing persecution. In fact, it's happening more and more in places that have largely been considered Christian in the past. That's true. This would be true of both Europe and Canada, and I would say even the United States is beginning to experience some of this. And to be honest, as I've watched this, I think part of it has to do with the increasing Muslim influence around the world, that they're having a great influence on governments, and especially as they are moving into positions and being elected to positions in various levels of government from the local to the national level. For example, just at the end of last month, there was a street preacher arrested by police in the London area, and he was called a racist for preaching about salvation. And as the second officer arrived on the scene, they arrested him, stripped the Bible from his hand, and he kindly asked if he could have the his Bible back. And the officer said, you should have thought about that before you decided to be racist. In another article coming out of Canada, Canada became one of the first countries in the world to recognize same-sex marriage, and originally the it looked like they were going to be tolerant, but now the article says it's not premature to speak of open discrimination against Christians in Canada. And in fact, this very specifically came into a, uh, into focus, this extreme tolerance, when uh, Trinity Western University, which is the largest privately funded evangelical Christian university in all of Canada, they wanted to set out to establish a law school, and it was approved by British Columbia's Ministry of Education, but then Three other provinces of Canada came into play, and they blocked the move, and the law societies of these three provinces, which included Ontario, voted to deny accreditation to the law school. So this is open persecution, and we've seen it here in this country, not necessarily in the same forms yet, but I think it's coming with the photographers and the bakers and various Christian business owners who are being denied free speech rights and things like this. So things are developing, and they're moving this way. David, as we wrap up our discussion, there's a final point that I wanted to discuss with you. Some prophecy teachers argue that the persecution of Christians throughout history is evidence that the church will not escape future persecution through a pre-tribulational rapture. How would you respond to that thought? Well, I run into that uh 
argument quite frequently, both from those who hold to a pre-wrath rapture and especially those who would hold to a post-tribulational rapture. And I would say it's very misguided in understanding what is going to happen during Daniel's 70th week, the time that we call the tribulation period. What we understand is going on in the world and has happened throughout history is satanic opposition against God's people. It's happened in every century since the Church uh, came into being. The first century was no exception, but what we need to understand is there's a difference between this persecution at the hands of men who are being, I would say, satanically inspired in many cases, and what happens during the tribulation period. The tribulation is the wrath of God, not the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan, even though God may use Satan to carry out some of his judgments against the world. And we are promised that the Church will not be subjected to the wrath of God, even though Christ said, in this world you will have tribulation. That kind of tribulation is different from the wrath of God and what we typically call the tribulation period. The Church will be spared from that and raptured uh, to be in the presence of the Lord as those judgments are carried out on the earth. And I would have to say a hallelujah, amen, and everything else I could think of. That is a wonderful, wonderful thought that we will escape all of the wrath of God to come. Praise the Lord for that. David, a very important discussion that I believe we should have had, and we did have it today, and we need to focus on this issue in the future as well. So help me to remember to do that. It's key for the body of Christ. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. I'll look forward to it as always, Jimmy. Thanks so much. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I'm going to take a look at the book, Keep the Dial Set. We'll find out what God's Word has to say about current events. And that's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical 
biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. We have some very important reports from our broadcast partners with up-to-date information on a number of key events that are happening all across the world. All of these reports help us to better understand how current events fit into the prophetic scenario that will come to pass according to the Bible, and current events only are effective when they align themselves with God's Word. So we have the broadcast partners, and then we take a look at the book as we are right now. You need to hear all of these reports. Maybe in the 90-minute broadcast, you had to slip away. You did not get the chance to hear all of the reports. Well, you can do that. You can go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There we have archived all of the reports that we've received. They are kept there until you have an opportunity to hear them. This is a great way for you to be informed as to how current events are indeed helping to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. May I suggest you tell a friend? Your friends need to know all this information as well. Now, what you can do is send the link to your friends and ask them if they would like to know how current events are indeed setting up the prophetic activities of the future as foretold by the ancient Jewish prophets. Well, what we're going to do now is take a look at all the broadcast partners' reports, and we'll give then a prophetic perspective on each of these reports. Ken Timmerman covers the geopolitical world for us. He had a number of reports. You may want to hear the rest of them. But his number one report is the fact that 50 Iranian drones in a massive exercise, is unfolding right there in the Persian Gulf area today. They are calling it Way to Jerusalem. These 50 drones come from the one drone that the United States had flying over Iran. It was shot down, and the Iranians have taken that drone, replicated it, and they have 50 drones in this massive exercise. Well, that is the current event, prophetically, You must remember Iran is key to understanding Bible prophecy. In the Bible, Iran, modern-day Iran, is referred to as Persia. That's the biblical name. And until 1936, Persia was the name for Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan today. Now, they're all lumped together in the prophetic passage of Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5. There, the very first nation mentioned is Persia, modern-day Iran. There will be an alignment of nations. Psalm 83 in verse 4 says, These nations, this alignment of Islamic nations led by Russia, 
will go into a council meeting, come out, and their statement will be, let's wipe Israel off the face of the earth, that her name be forgotten forever. It is key to understand who these nations are, and it will help you to understand how Bible prophecy is being fulfilled. For example, one of our other broadcast partners, David Dolan, announced that a high-ranking Syrian political official said that if Israel does not withdraw from the Golan Heights, Syria will attack. Well, when you look at Daniel chapter 11, verse 40 to 45, you see that Syria is the first nation to attack the Jewish state. They will lead this coalition to destroy the nation of Israel. And by the way, as they do that, Damascus, Syria, will be destroyed. That was foretold in Isaiah chapter 17. So in the report from Ken Timmerman, we were able to understand how current events fit in to the prophetic scenario. David Dolan gives us his Middle East news update. His lead story, Hamas fires two rockets into Tel Aviv. You might remember that the Palestinian people have been in conflict with the Jewish people, really, for some 4,000 years. It started in the womb of their mother when twin boys, Jacob and Esau, were struggling inside the womb of their mother, indicating that as the Lord told Rebekah, their mother, there was going to be a fight going on between these two, which will produce two manner of people, Jacob producing the Jewish people, Esau producing the Palestinian people. In the end times, Malachi 1 says, the Palestinian people, the Edomites, will return to the land of Israel. The Lord says he will have indignation against these people forever as they endeavor to set up their borders. And he said he would call those borders the borders of wickedness. Ezekiel chapter 35 says the Palestinians will kill and steal the land. Obadiah says they'll be wiped out as if they have never been. Itamar Marcus gave us information about the Palestinian Authority television that's teaching children that Israel will soon disappear from the earth and they'll have their state of Palestine. Well, that's what they are saying. That's Palestinian media. The Word of God says that will not happen. As I just mentioned, Obadiah says the Palestinians will be wiped out as if they have never been. That will be done by the Jewish state of Israel, Obadiah verse 18. John Rood talked about the British Parliament votes. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it looks like Brexit is going to be delayed for a while. What we do know, the bottom line is that the European Union, however many members they have, will be the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. Great conversation with Jim Jr. about our tour group in the land of Israel. And then David James and I, in our weekly conversation, talked about Christian persecution around the world. That will begin prior to the tribulation and continue throughout all the seven-year tribulation period when believers in Christ will be persecuted and many of them will be killed. These reports from our broadcast partners are actually tangible evidence that the prophetic scenario found in the Word of God is at the point of fulfillment. Do you know what the next prophecy is that will be fulfilled? It is the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trumpet God sounds, and those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior— 
will be caught up to meet him in the air. What a blessed hope that is. And that rapture, by the way, could actually happen today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.